Thank God. Mark chapter 15, if you have your Bibles. We're actually going to be floating around four verses of Scripture. Uh, we've got others, but uh, four verses of Scripture. This evening, in, in my study uh, of Easter in, uh, in the sermon I was putting together, uh, Joseph of Arameta uh, came to my attention, and it was kind of fascinating. There are men and women who pop up for a moment in history, and then they're gone. There's different, there's been sports figures, political leaders, business individuals. For one moment, they're there, they do something significant, and then they fade into history in that moment. Some have called that the 15-minute of fame opportunity or syndrome. This man that we're going to look at was involved in one task. Now, some have argued maybe he should have been involved in more. I don't know. But we're going to look at him and think about this man because of what he did and how he influenced the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark 15, verse 43, Joseph of Aramiathus took a risk and went into Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph, an honored member of the high council or the Sanhedrin, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. I want to think about this man because he's fascinating as we read the scriptures. And again, he's only mentioned, he's mentioned in all four gospels. He's only mentioned at this moment. Well, a couple of things we do know about him is that he was a very wealthy man. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 57, as he even approached Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus. Now, mark it down that one of the marks on this man is that he's wealthy. Now, some people think, because Jesus said in Mac, uh, Matthew uh, 19.24 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, that may, that uh, w- without a doubt is true. But that, some people think then no rich people can get saved. That wealthy people are condemned to hell if you have some money. You must be sinning or you must be doing something wrong. This is kind of a, uh, a twisted mentality on the blessing of God. But the thought there in the rich is the rich can forget God. Deuteronomy chapter 8 warns wealthy people. It says, in the time, uh, but at that time you need to be careful. This is verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Beware that when you are in the plenty, uh, that uh, your, uh, beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commandments, regulations, decrees that I am giving you today. The thought that is there is that rich people think they're self-sufficient. They can fix things on their own. 
We have a wonderful medical uh, uh, technology today that has surpassed an incredible historical life expectancy rates and and uh, things that they can cure and take care of uh, that used to be death sentences. That in the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, uh, things have absolutely gone uh, amazingly. And money can buy that. And so people think, well, if that can be true, then I don't need God to heal me. I don't need God's help. I've got some money. I'm okay. But what's interesting is this man doesn't do that. Our text tells us that he was looking or literally waiting for the kingdom of God to come. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was the council of 70, the ruler of the religious sect of the Jews. A Pharisee of Pharisees. In our text, it says that he was a member of the high council. The 70 most influential men in Israel. Nicodemus was one of these. And it says in John 3, 1, that a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee, or the New King James says a ruler of the Jews. He was a man that had power, if you will. He had influence. Uh, he was, he understood uh, the law. To get there, he had to have been righteous concerning the law. Paul writes and says that in Philippians 3, 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a pure-blood citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish laws. The Sanhedrin would have been very strict on that. These are the ones that would have been the Pharisees of Pharisees, if you will. They would have been uh, in the Catholic tradition. They would have been the cardinals. They would have been uh, the highest ranking uh, of, uh, except for the high priest. Uh, They would have been uh, the ones that would have made and determined different uh, issues in Israel. He's a member of this. He's also a man that knew people. Our text tells us that he went into Pilate. There aren't too many of us right now that you couldn't just drive to Albany and go in and see Governor Hochul. You would need an appointment. You would need, you know, probably security clearance. That might even be true of the mayor of the city, or different other people in influential power. But he's able to go into the governor of Rome. He knew this man. Pilate was not shocked, and we'll look a little later of their lengthy conversation. But he was able to get access, and he was able to get access quickly. He went to Pilate when Jesus died. He said, you know what? I'm going to go get the body of Jesus and I want to bury him. And this is the only time he shows up. This is what he did. 
But what's very interesting about him is that although he has these things going, he's got some money, he's got power, he's got relationships. But yet, he lived in fear. John chapter 19 says that afterwards, Joseph of Arimathes, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave him permission, Joseph came and took the body away. We don't know how long he had been a secret believer of Jesus. We don't know how fear had gripped him. But fear is a powerful emotion. People are motivated by fear. We live in the shaming or the cancel culture. And there's people who won't make statements or stands for what is right because they're afraid they'll be canceled on social media. I got a better idea. Cancel social media. It causes people to shut up. It causes people to back down. Fear causes people to not do what they should do and to do what they shouldn't do. Sometimes this is simply peer pressure, the fear of not fitting in. Many of the entry times that I got involved in sin, it was because, whether it was smoking cigarettes or drinking or some other thing, it was because I wanted to look a certain way to friends or people around me. It was the fear of them going, ha ha, you loser, that causes people to make bad decisions. Sometimes people don't do what they should do. Our Sunday school video dealt so greatly that people, one of the reasons they don't, they're afraid they don't tithe. Well, I won't have enough. So it causes them to disobey God. Fear is a very powerful thing. Second Timothy 1, 6 and 7 says, This is why I remind you to fan the flames of the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands upon you. For God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of a self-disciplined mind. That here, fear destroys those things. You look at those, it destroys love. I've heard a horrible, horrible interview of a woman who, who was in a foreign country overrun by rebels, forced to choose between killing her own baby or being killed herself. And she chose to kill, and the regret that she lived with for killing her own baby. But fear at the moment gripped her, and she made a very bad decision. Fear also causes people to do nothing. Fear caused Adam to hide. 
Fear caused Elijah to run. Fear has great, powerful motivations. It's a main tool of the enemy, the devil. He'll intimidate. He'll make you want. He'll tell you things. If you do this, I'll ruin you. I'll, I'll, to get you to back down. Be afraid. This is why the author in Hebrews writes, so that we can say with confidence, Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear what mere people can do to me. I'm not going to back down because of fear or intimidation. But for a while, Joseph did. We don't know exactly, again, when this came. What was his fear? Maybe it was fear of, of the Jews. We know that John 12, verse 42, many people did believe in him. However, including some of the Jewish leaders... They wouldn't admit it for fear of the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. They're worried about their status. They're worried about what will people think. I may lose some status if I'm a believer. In America, we have the FICO score. This is your credit score. It's actually your debt score, but that's a whole other issue. But the FICO score determines if you can get certain loans and what rate you can get them at. It will always, it has that ability on that. China has introduced a social score that they're marking you, and, and if you fall below a certain level, this will be based on, if you jaywalk, that's one thing that actually will reduce your, uh, your, your social credit score. But one of the things is the books you read. One of the books that is banned on it is called the Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen that book around. You buy the Bible, your social score goes down. They will prevent you from traveling, getting certain jobs. And so their work there is to intimidate believers. We saw that Joseph was one of the religious leaders, but because of fear of the religious leaders. Maybe John is writing knowing this. Knowing that he did believe in, by John chapter 12, but because of the religious leaders, he's intimidated. Maybe it was a fear of reputation. Mark, Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who want to kill the body and cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both body and soul in hell forever. Maybe it was a fear of loss. Maybe if I, if I make this confession, maybe I'll lose my fortune. See, he had great things. But when you think you have great things, you think you have so much to lose. 
It's the old preacher who said, you know, when I was young and broke, uh, you know, we, we told God he could have everything. And he's going on about this. And finally, somebody from the audience yells, do it again. And he put down the mic and walked away. Because now he had some things, feared to lose it. Maybe it was a loss of relationships. If I, if I get serious about this Jesus thing, maybe some of my fellow Sanhedrin won't invite me over for Passover dinner. Or Shabbat, or whatever they call it. This is not as far, Joseph is not as far from us as many times. There's people who won't witness because of that. They won't give because of that. They won't pray because of that. They won't be faithful to a church because of that. What, what am I going to lose? I fear what I'll lose. And so fear for fear of the Jews, for a while, he does nothing. That's why what the words that start our text in Matthew, Mark 15, 43 are amazing. It says, Joseph took a risk. He was willing to take a risk. To stand up and say, enough is enough. He had to break with the religious establishment. Luke says of him that now there was a good righteous man named Joseph, and he was a member of the Jewish high council. But he had not agreed with the decisions and actions of the other religious leaders. This is the trial. This is the mock trial that was going on, that when they brought Jesus in at night, and they began to mock and brought witnesses that contradicted each other. They couldn't keep their story straight. This one saying Jesus said this or did that, and the other one saying he did that, and they're, you know, contradicting themselves. Finally, they just ask him, are you the son of God? He says, yes. And they say, well, they ripped their clothes. We need to hear no more. Let's crucify him. One man wrote, somewhere between the trial before the Sanhedrin and the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph and Nicodemus had to make a decision to make their private faith public. And they did it with an extraordinary gesture. The thought, I cannot be silent any longer. We can miss all that's going on here because we don't quite grasp all the, all the details, all that's happening there. But they, they had preconceived Jesus' conviction. They had predetermined his guilt before he ever stood trial. John 7, 44 through 52. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. 
When the temple guards returned without having Jesus, uh, have arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. Have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked? Is there a single one of us rulers, our Pharisees, who believe in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of God's, of the, of of the law. God's curse be upon them. Then Nicodemus, the religious leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. It is illegal to convict someone before giving him a hearing, he said. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee. Somewhere between now and the crucifixion for Nicodemus it dropped, and I think that he and Joseph were Probably an alliance. Probably connected in that. They made a very, very public statement. Your faith needs to be public. Oh, it's private, man. It's in here. There's a lot of things in here that probably should remain private. But your faith is not one of them. It says that afterwards, when Joseph of Arimeth, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because of fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, this is John's gospel, permission to take Jesus down. When Pilate gave him permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him, Nicodemus, a man who had come to Jesus by night, and they brought about 75 pounds of perfume and ointment made from mirth and aloes. This is remarkable. A couple of things you need to understand. One is that typically someone crucified like Jesus was considered a traitor. He was considered a criminal, a a rebel. He had committed treason as far as they were concerned. One of two things typically happened to their bodies. One, either they were thrown into a pauper's grave field, one that was bought similarly with the money that Judas had thrown back on the floor, and simply just a pile of stones was put on the body. Other times, the Romans would simply take the body out to the wilderness And in a final act of disgrace, just allow the wild beasts to feed on it. Not allowing it to have a proper burial. It was very unusual for a pilot to be asked or even to grant the wishes of someone so publicly identified as an enemy of the state to have a decent burial. Mark tells us that the combination that when Joseph came to Pilate, it says that Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. He called the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet, and the officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. As Joseph is doing this, that word would spread very quickly. Gossip spreads very quickly. 
And this would have spread. People would have heard. This would have come to the ears of other Pharisees. Not only that, it would have been very disgraceful for a Pharisee to handle a dead body. They didn't do that. Anyone who touches a dead body would be considered unclean. They would not have, this would not have been something that the Pharisees would have ever done. I mean, the Jews wouldn't even touch the fruit if it was offered to them by a Gentile. Never mind a dead body. They would be repulsed by it. And here are two of the Sanhedrin doing this. This is a very public statement. Not only that, they would be considered unclean for the Passover, which was the next day. They would not be able to partake of that high religious holiday of the Jews. Probably one of the highest, if not the highest, as we studied the feasts. They would have known this was the reality. What had been done. They were making a very public statement that they were going to be followers of Jesus. Some say maybe too late. I don't know. I think if you're on this side of the dirt, it's probably not too late. If you make a public statement, I'll just say this and move on to the final thought. But one is... Some people resent others who come to the plate late. They come in later. Jesus tells the the parable of the workers who have been working since the morning and they end up getting the same wage as those who came in with just one hour to go. And they're like, that's not fair. Jesus said, my money was our deal. You got what you agreed to. Why is it so bad? They never thought, you know what, tomorrow we could come back and and do this again. They're only getting a day's wage. But some people resent. That's the older brother mentality of, of the prodigal son. Who are they? Why are they in it? Can't you rejoice in people who come and at least get it? I'm sure these two men were influential in the church in the early days. History, I can't prove this biblically, history says that Joseph probably ended up in Glasgow, Scotland, preaching the gospel. I don't know if you understand geography, but that's a long way away from Jerusalem. He would have had to either travel by boat or over most of land through Europe. Either way, that is where tradition has his death. That he became a missionary evangelist. Can't prove that other than historical writings. You can look that up yourself. A blessing to the kingdom of God. God. 
The other resentment that people have that I think when they look at this and they say, well, he could have done better, is, well, what about you? Why are you criticizing him when you could be doing... What, what because notice, it wasn't Jesus' 12 disciples. It wasn't Jesus' brothers. It was two Pharisees who buried him. Where are the disciples? Where are his brothers? Yes, the gospel of Mark tells us that on Saturday evening, when the Sabbath had ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, went out and purchased some burial spites so they could anoint the body of Jesus. Very early on Sunday morning, just as the sunrise, they went to the tomb. This is like three days too late. And get, as they approached the tomb, they're like, wish we had a big strapping young man with us who could roll the stone out of the way. They get there, they find an angel sitting on top of it and the stone and the tomb open. But it was these men at that time who decided, we're going to do this. John tells us, verses 40 through 42, following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and the long sheets of linen cloth. The place of the crucifixion was near a garden where they had where a new tomb that was never used before. So they uh, so because of the day of preparation of the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Who's they? That's Joseph, and that's Nicodemus. They did what no one else seemed to want to do. They were willing to do that moment. This is why I think all four Gospels mention him. They mention, this fulfilled a prophecy, Isaiah 53, 9. He had done no wrong. He never deserved. Uh, he had never uh, deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was Joseph of Aramaeus that mentioned in all four Gospels as the only one willing to do it. The only one that would actually make this stand. He's finished as a Sahedrin. He's finished as a Pharisee. He's finished with some of his relationships. That's all given. But now he says, I'm going, to make, I'm going to identify with my crucified Savior. Blood would have been upon him. Jesus' body was wrecked. He would have had all of that. And yet he was willing to do it. And I think that's why all the Gospels pay tribute to this man. He overcame his fear. He overcame the intimidation of society and the pressures on him at the moment. And he said, you know what? I am going to identify with Jesus. Acts chapter 4. Peter's preaching. John's with him. 
They have healed the man at the gate beautiful. They've arrested them. They brought him. And the only thing they say is, you know what, we, we gain, you guys are uneducated, it, which doesn't mean they were stupid, it just means that they hadn't been to theological Bible school. But, we perceive you have been with Jesus. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. Joseph of Arimathea, he's just a tremendous picture of a man who overcame fears took a risk and entered history. Entered a place where God's honor is upon him. He's mentioned in all four Gospels. He's mentioned there he, that this is what he did when no one else wanted to do it. We can overcome fear. It begins with the fear of wanting to get your heart right with God. Well, what will people think? I, I agree with you. I agree with what the Bible says. I, I, I'm a sinner. I know I need, but, you know, what will my friends say? What will this say? Overcome that. Make a public statement for God. Just come to an altar and pray a prayer. You're here tonight. You're not right with God. You need to do that. Would you slip up your hand and say, pray for me? I need to get my heart right. Maybe you're backslidden for that reason. Couldn't make a stand. Fear was gripping your heart. You lost it and you want to come back to Jesus. Very quickly, slip up your hand. Changing the call into Christians. Sometimes when we have so much, we think we have so much to lose. But do we? Did Joseph lose out? Maybe in the immediate. But historically and in heaven. And yes, there'll be people who come to the table late. They come and maybe they've waited and you've served God for a lie and they come late and what? But you know what? Maybe they're going to do what you wouldn't do. Or maybe they're going to do what you should have done. But don't be upset with them. Ask yourself, what fears hold me back? Why am I not making a public stand to identify with my crucified Savior? Let's all stand. These altars are open. We're going to allow people to find a place to pray worship God this evening.
Christ is enough. And Christ. Let's give Him praise. Let's worship Him tonight.